and welcome to Dateline New Haven. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Today we're going to welcome, by the way, the second day after the primary election that shook Connecticut, ushered in many new faces to the forefront of our political scene as we head into the fall campaign, promising it's going to be lively and forcing us to see the world as it is and as it's changing rather than the way we thought it worked. Today's episode is called Headlines and Baselines. I'm going to feature music of local and local adjacent artists, mostly produced since the pandemic started, because that changed our world too. And we're also going to look at some of the stories of the week and run them down and see what they meant. The big story was Leora Levy. It was a primary election week in Connecticut. And the Democrats and Republicans had a few contested races, picking candidates to run in the general election in November. And the big issues were not on the ballot. Those big issues will be in November when we vote for people who will decide whether we want to promote more access to voting or crack down on perceived fraud in voting, whether we want to invest more in cities or not, whether we want to use state investments, billions of dollars in states' investment money, not just to seek the best returns for our pensioners, but to accomplish certain social goals and which ones. Those are the big issues. They matter. And we're going to think about them in November. On Tuesday, it was who will best represent each party in that election to make the case. So Democrats and Republicans, the voters in those parties decided whom they wanted to have on the ballot. And there were some big, it was one big surprise. That was in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. It's going to be a tough election this year for the Republicans. They're going up against Dick Blumenthal has been winning elections since 1990 for various races. He's going for his third term as the U.S. Senate. He has something like $75 million in the bank. He's very well known. He's a fierce campaigner. It was considered a heavy lift all along for the Republicans. And then the Republican voters decided not to pick the candidate who the pundits, people like me or in the media, watched politics for a long time, said would be their best shot. The person the pollsters said, would be the best shot. That was Themis Clarities. She was a former state Republican leader in the state legislature. She was the first woman to lead the uh, be minority leader in the state house. She's been winning elections for decades. And she was the only person really known and has been winning elections in the primary. So everyone thought she'd win. Also, Themis Clarities is a moderate Republican, what we used to call a Republican. Now we call a moderate Republican. And that she's definitely conservative. And she also governed. She would negotiate with Democrats. She wouldn't go back on what she believed in, either with the Democrats, but they would craft a budget or other legislation where they each stated their goals and then found the common ground that they could so that something could get passed and issues could be addressed. That's how we legislated in America for a few hundred years. It's not what we're often doing these days, though there's still signs of that in the U.S. Senate. But Themis Clarities did not roll the victory. Instead, she got soundly defeated by a right-wing Republican who had never held office. Not only that, by someone who really wasn't seeming ready to prime time for reporters like us who went to their debate and thought, okay, well, she doesn't really have a chance. She doesn't really know how to do this kind of stuff. Some Leora Levy, who's an accomplished woman. She's 65 years old. She's a um, commodities trader in Greenwich. She's wealthy. She has been on the Republican National Committee. But she did a U-turn in her career and became a Trumpist. She used to be a moderate Republican pro choice pro Mitt Romney. Now she's all in for Donald Trump. 
And Donald Trump, the night before the elect primary, even an hour after he announced the raid on his Mar-a-Lago mansion, did an event virtually for Leora Levy. He threw down for her and he endorsed her a few days before that. And people thought that wouldn't help her. Pundits thought that wouldn't help her. This Connecticut. In Connecticut, not only are Republicans the minority party out of three, meaning Democrats of 800,000 and change voters, but unaffiliated with determined elections that have 900,000 change voters, Republicans only have about 460,000 registered voters. They're declining. They're not winning statewide elections for a long time now. And Donald Trump was highly unpopular the two times he ran for president. However, Leora Levy won. And a lot of people think Donald Trump helped her win. That was basically her identity. She was the Trump candidate. She won the primary. And she upended expectations and all of the conventional wisdom about how Connecticut works and how politics work in Connecticut. We thought Connecticut was still, as a blue state, had a somewhat moderate Republican Party, clearly turning less, the more conservative. However, the Republican Party still was seen as not Trumpist, right? They've elected people like Themis Clarities as recently as five minutes ago. It turned out Themis Clarities really didn't resonate with the base anymore. The people who voted in primaries, even though she was very pro-cop, had conservative bona fides, kind of a fighter, she really didn't register with people except in the few towns where she'd spent her, most of her career in her life, in the Valley. She didn't even win all the towns in the Valley. So something was up, and something is up. And now all the conventional wisdom is the Republicans shot themselves in the foot. Because don't forget, not many people vote in a primary, especially when there's no governor's race. So only 20% of the 460,000 Republicans, give or take, 48,000 actually voted, a little more than 20%. So even to get all the Republican votes, which is not enough to win an election, Leora Levy is going to have to convince all the people who didn't vote for her in the primary. And then the pundits say, the Republicans just blew it. How are they going to take on a, an incumbent, Dick Blumenthal, with someone who in polls doesn't come near him, isn't used to running the campaigns, and is clearly to the, to the far right of where mainstream Connecticut is. So there are already these predictions that the, uh, that the Republicans blew it by nominating and endorsing Levy in this primary. However, I would say proceed with caution. And I'll tell you why. So the argument is that, okay, Republicans keep nominating for statewide office these millionaire self-financed candidates. They run because they have a lot of money, not because they have experience. They think because they did well in business, they could do well in politics. Since 2010, it's been case after case after case of how that doesn't work. Linda McMahon of Worldwide Wrestling, she threw $50 million a pop the two times she ran for Senate, did not win. Tom Foley ran against Dan Malloy, who was not popular, twice, put in all his money. He was a businessman, no political experience. He lost. Mr. Stefanowski, who's running for governor this time, ran four years ago. He self-finances a businessman, although you have to mention he did run last time against a Democrat with the same resume, but he also did not win. So here's the conventional wisdom now after Tuesday night. Well, there's no way this person could win, Leora Levy. She's to the right. She says crazy stuff, and she does say crazy stuff. People can't stand Trump. That's what motivated the last midterm election to have the Republicans get quashed. And Dick Blumenthal's untouchable. 
I would say that I don't feel as comfortable making that prediction because those were the same predictions made in 2016 about why Donald Trump had no chance. The same polls, the same lack of experience, the same norm breaking, the same he's all the way out there, way crazier than what people will vote for. And remember that even when politicians seem invincible, there comes a day when they're suddenly not. Chris Dodd was an invincible senator, suddenly was not how to leave. New Haven's had mayors who were popular for decades when elections all of a sudden couldn't win an election. I'm not saying that'll happen this year at Dick Blumenthal, but for the first time, his his approval ratings are in the negative zone. More people disapprove of how he's performing than approve. He's been there a long time. He's still working hard. He's still the Dick Blumenthal they knew. He, too, has said some crazy stuff. Not recently, but he did once say he served in Vietnam when he didn't. That did not stop him from winning when Linda McMahon spent $50 million reminding people about that. So I'm not saying Dick Blumenthal is going to lose or that the odds aren't in his favor. I'm saying that Tuesday night's election should be another reminder to those of us who critique elections, who analyze elections, who work either in the media or in politics, that we can't assume we know how things work just because they always work that way. Things change. And America's going to a very different place. So since it's headlines and baselines, music and the headlines, let's see what the Blue Jays have to say with America. They did an America checkup on their latest album called The Blue Jays. It's a duo that includes Kristen Ford, whom we've known here for many years in New Haven as she built her career, placing clubs like Cafe Nine, she still comes back, and MC Genesis Blue from Houston. They have a great duo. I love their album, Blue Magic. And uh, let's hear their song, America Pulse, to hear their take on where we are right now in America. Checking for your code, putting that heartbeat, profits in the family, struck down in our month of pride, praying
multiracial and nation. But none of us were here until they took it from the natives. Then we turn around and had a nerve to be racist. Justify the use of religious discrimination. Had a terror goddess in the palm of their hand. But we can't get together to create a counter plan. Violence, silence, rising riots. Innocent dying, government lying. Can't get ahead cause we all too consumed. With who I sleep with and where I use the restroom. I'm just trying to tell you that I got the antidote. Campaign for love, let peace win the vote. Feel like giving up, but I still got hope. Respecting every person that will really be dope. You can stand with love all far from the hate. Let's adopt one label for ourselves, human race. Oh, yes, we should pray for Orlando. Like we pray for Sandy Hooks and Bernardino. We'll stop going to the movies and stop going to the club. Even kindergartners should be carrying the gun. Stonewall was a riot after the press were not enough. So won't you stand up? Stand up. America, checking for your pulse. The beat of my heart is crying L-O-B-E Cause I want all of my people to be free, to be free The beat of my heart is crying L-O-B-E Cause I want all of my people to be free, to be free Now what we want, peace, and who is us, we So just let us be and live in harmony Now what we want, peace, and who is us, we So just let us be and live in harmony of my heart is spelling l-o-v-e i want my people to be free that's america checking our pulse with the blue janes that's Kristen ford mc genesis blue from their latest release and you're hearing that on dateline new haven's headlines and baselines looking at the latest news of the week interspersed with music local music and local ish music from some of the best local artists since the pandemic started for the most part and we were talking about the elections. I'm going to cue up one more song here. In the background, that'll be Stephen Gritz. He's from New Haven. He does kind of a smooth jazz thing. He's got a nice new album that he produced during the um, during the pandemic. The album's called Conversations. It's called Saving Time. So we're talking about the statewide elections and how the Republicans surprised everyone. New face, new approach, causing us to challenge all of our assumptions about where the country's heading, how it works, and how politics might have worked a certain way even a week ago, a year ago. That doesn't mean how it's working now. The story was somewhat the same, somewhat different. On the Democratic side, Tuesday night, there were no big primaries for governor, no private secretary of the state, attorney general. But yet New Haven, we actually cared a lot about this race because we had three candidates running in two primaries for positions that now do matter a lot. We didn't used to care about them, but in this changing world, Secretary of the State, the top election officials become huge nationwide in our battle about the future of our democracy and how our polarized nation sees the basic fundamental issues about voting so completely different. Not only whether the 2020 election was legitimate or whether when your side loses, you just continually say, well, it wasn't legitimate it was crooked and you spend years trying to upend government to fight it but also honest discussions about whether the rules are right whether we have more democracy by making it easier for people to vote 
or whether that opens the door to fraud or whether we found ways to have it not open the way to fraud. And it's a good conversation. We're going to have it. Similarly with state treasury, there's $45 billion in state assets that get managed by state treasury. It's a big deal because it includes all the pensions for generations of state workers and our fiscal health because of our other state investments. That used to be a sleepy position. I used to say, why the heck do we have a state treasurer? But now, besides the issue that our pensions were underwater and finally last decade or so, we've tried to make some progress in um, shoring up those funds. Both parties are arguing that we should invest our money not just for the highest return, but to accomplish social goals, that there's a responsibility that goes with the money. I thought it was going to shape up where Democrats say that Republicans, because I still thought the Republican Party was the fiscally conservative Republican Party of five minutes ago, and especially 20 years ago in Connecticut. I thought they were going to say, no, this is about investing the money. But in fact, both sides are trying to accomplish, in some cases, opposite social goals with the treasurer. And you heard that in these primaries, again, not against each other, because the Democrats all agreed, the Republicans agreed, they got Harry Aurora, who did not have a primary, he'll be in there. But what Democrats are saying, what they said, is that we shouldn't invest that money in socially responsible corporations. And there's a whole ESG, social governance and environmental uh, investing. That's a national trend, and it's a complicated trend. Economists had a good piece about how sometimes it's self-contradictory when you're making those decisions. It might not accomplish the goals you think. But an overall idea is that, especially people of the most center liberal bent, think that there's a climate emergency in the world. So we should not invest in fossil fuel companies or companies that promote fossil fuels and stop us from dealing with climate change. Since the Supreme Court knocked down Roe versus Wade, constitutional right to abortion, Treasurer's race was talking about this, which really blew our minds. And they agree that we shouldn't, either we shouldn't fund companies, but more importantly, they want to create a national treasurer fund. The guy who won the primary, Eric Russell in the Haven, said he wants to get the treasurers together to create a fund to help women afford to leave states where abortion is banned and to come here to Connecticut or other states, blue states or purple states where it's legal. Kind of interesting. And on the other side, it just emerged this week that the Republican state treasurers country, nationwide across the country, have formed their own group to do something really interesting. They want to punish any investment firms that don't invest in fossil fuels. So if you're a hedge fund or an equity fund or some other investment vehicle for, for the, your state's bond money or your other investments, we're, so Republicans are saying to them, if you're not going to invest in coal or companies that invest in coal, then you're not getting our investment. And this has already been to the tune of billions of dollars that some of these um, investment firms have lost from Republican state treasurers. Started in West Virginia, of course, but it's all over the country now. And saying that um, climate change is a hoax or we need to promote fossil fuels and stop this kind of green investing thing. Not just that we won't do it, but that we're going to punish firms that are getting pressure on the other end. And obviously, the state treasurer group for the Republicans is funded by the fossil fuel industry. So there's going to be stake in November. But in the meantime, there was a three-way race for this office people don't usually pay attention to for the Democratic primary. And there were two New Haveners, Eric Russell's 33 years old. Talk about generational change. The seat's open. And he's an attorney. He works with uh, his clients include municipalities that invest their money. So uh, float bonds. So he has that experience. And he, um, so he, he was one guy running for generational change. And he promised to create this statewide treasures group to deal with the abortion issue. And then Karen Du Bois Walton 
who's more experienced. She's in her mid fifties. She has for decades had public sector experience in New Haven. She was chief of staff for the mayor. She's been running the housing authority very well for the last 15 years. She um, is the state board ed president. She was ready. She's ready for a new challenge. And she was running for that. But Eric Russell won. Everyone ran a good race. And he, we can't completely confirm it, but a group that monitors these things says that he will be the, if he wins in November, he will be the first openly gay black state official in America. So I think what that tells us is, again, not quite the same way as the Republican side, but there's change going on. New faces. We have a gerontocracy running our country in both parties. People in their 70s and 80s really holding a lot of the leadership positions. And experience is important. I'm not one of these people who say, don't elect people who have been in there because they're part of the problem. I think learning how to legislate well takes experience. Seeing how you compromise, how you get proposals over the goal line, how you follow through to make sure money goes where it's supposed to, how you work with other legislators from different jurisdictions with different outlooks to make laws that work. So I think that this generational change is important because it did happen on the um, Secretary of State's rate too. Marissa Bond's a new face she, for politics, electoral politics. She's New Haven's health director. She spent in her mid-40s. She's got a lot of energy and she's been very involved in um, public health. She tried to make the transition to Secretary of State. It didn't quite work, but we got a new face in Stephanie Thomas, who was only a single-term legislator from Fairfield County. She was a surprise victor. It's a long story. I won't go into here how she got the party's nomination at the convention. She impressed people. She was supposed to come in fourth or fifth out of six. She was expecting that, hoping to make the ballot, and then she won the convention. And then she won the, she's not a dynamic candidate, but she's a very responsible person. Can see moderate. Labor didn't like her because she voted against the bill that would have Require, that did require that if you're in the hospitality industry and you laid off some of the pandemic, they get first right in order to come back to their jobs. She also was against an affordable housing bill involved zoning. Those aren't really Secretary of State issues, I would argue. She, the Secretary of State candidates agreed on the Democratic side that they want to have no excuse absentee ballot, universal balloting. They agree that fraud is a made-up issue in any consequential way and that efforts by Republican proposals to voter ID and, and not having drop boxes, in fact, will make it harder for people to vote. The Democrats agree that it should be early voting. On the Republican side, in there was a uh, uh, Don Rapini and um, had a primary that he won, and the candidates there said voter fraud is a big issue. They made some allegations that actually got laughed out of the State Elections Commission and, and prompted some complaints that those are fraudulent. But there are legitimate arguments about do absentee ballot balloting, does it leave open too much for fraud. We know there have been cases where fraud did exist. On the national level, journalists talk of fraud. The only cases where people actually get arrested for the most part are the Republicans who are claiming fraud. Donald Trump's chief of staff, who was overseeing the Stop the Seal um, strategy in early 2021, 2020, in fact, was convicted of uh, fraudulent voting, saying live one place, voting other. But, but there's still a fair argument about, because I've seen as a reporter when there's been cheating with absentee ballots, whether early voting is a good idea, whether the goal should be doing everything you can to get more voting or whether the goal is to eliminate barriers that unfairly prevent people from voting, but measuring a democracy by having the ability to participate and then anyone's interested can participate meaningfully as opposed to raw numbers. So I think that's a good debate. In us, uh, we have new faces on the Democratic side, new faces on the Republican side. So it's going to be an interesting fall, interesting elections. It's going to matter. and um. That's the headline for that. So I'd like to now play one of my favorite 
New Haven artist Chesky. He's become a national figure, um, indie singer-songwriting. He also had an interesting story about our times coming out of COVID, what's happened to the values in our society, and how some of it's not new. It's from his new album, This Guitar Was Stolen, along with the years of our lives. And this song is called 2020 B.C. Anyone absolutely certain that they understand everything Hasn't lived enough to know it's impossible to come close Seek the good in humanity, right? Even if it's a struggle most times This hate natural love we train to fight like some pit bulls We've been locking jaws into each other's backs well before Christ Is that what it takes to survive? Who taught us how to survive? faces long before pandemics arrived Many heartbroken backs working for some charismatic demigods Who raised minimum wages to build company loyalty Watch their employees die left and right Bosses' profits grew up for lost lives As they smiled for media commending philanthropy been glorifying wealth and greed and sociopathy It was packaged and sold to us as the American dream Splintered working class people to weaken our communities Fed us our siblings meet and convinced us that it was healthy Then told us that we were born free History manipulated by mythology <laughs> That's Trump's appointee who runs that FBI, you know. Chris. Billionaires 
of gangs, pedophiles, and radicals with beards. It's hard to calm down all of them. Reactionary friends making funeral arrangements 50 years before the deaths. I know it's true. The world we knew has changed and it's painful to face what's new. We have been grossly underfed for domesticated pets, craving love and attention. Satisfaction's hardly met I know it's true The world we knew Has changed and it's strange To face what's new So each generation Complains of the youth Saying things were much better than Please show more proof
That's New Haven's Chesky, 2020 BC. What a, what a powerful song. That guy's got a lot to say, and he says it his own way. From his new album, This Guitar Was Stolen, Along with the Years of Our Lives. This is Headlines and Baselines on WNHH's Dateline, New Haven, 103.5 FM. We're looking at the latest news of the week and hearing some of the latest music since the pandemic started from New Haven, New Haven adjacent musicians. In the background, you're going to be hearing another one from um, Stephen Gritz King. It goes by Gritz King, who uh, has a new album, Conversations with Jazz, and this is called Matrimony. So there's not, you know, we focus on all the bad news, and it's actually not accurate to say the world's going to hell. It's accurate to say that there's always stuff that's messed up in the world. There's always stuff that is inspiration can make you feel great. And there's always stuff that is just complicating out there. And uh, one thing that's great is a new skateboard shop opening downtown. There's actually a second one coming. This one has a theme about carrying on the tradition of black-owned skate shops, skateboard shops in New Haven. Devil's Gear is a bike shop. It's owned by John Brehan Jr. Or John Brehan, Johnny Brehan. And it's at 845 Chapel now. It's been around for a while. And he's teamed up with Jay Joseph, who's this guy who grew up in New Haven, went to Yale, or grew up in Brantford in New Haven, went to Yale, then stayed in town and, and united with a friend to create a skateboard park in Skinnerberry Park in Dixwell and help people learn how to skateboard there. There's a whole great skateboard culture. And they teamed up with a teenager named Sasha Cohen Cox. Sasha's dad was Lou Cox, who owned a black-owned skate shop in New Haven a while ago, no longer, called Channel One. So they've kept that tradition alive and opened a new skateboard shop inside Devil's Gear. There's a second one coming right down the block. Skateboard culture is alive in New Haven. Also, there's with Skateboard Park and in uh, Edgewood Park, which is redesigned with the cooperation of the skateboard community, young people, kind of outside the mainstream, let's say, and city officials. And it's a joyous place. They had a great music festival there, but every day's kind of music festival, especially the weekends, especially nice weather. People kind of being themselves, trying out moves, socializing. Now vendors bring material. They have authorized graffiti walls, which I don't know if that still makes a graffiti in fun or not, but that's the deal. Culture's thriving New Haven. It's still a great place to be yourself. And uh, one of those people who do that in New Haven is Stephen Gritz King. Let's listen a little more closely to his new album, his new song, Matrimony. Just you and me, Stephen Gritz, King of New Haven, from his latest album, Conversations. We're going to pick up the pace with the next generation of New Haven musicians. They're called the Midnight Strangers. They're teenagers in New Hallville. I mean, excuse me, in Westville. They have their second album out new-ish. It's called, let me get the name of it here, um, Odyssey. And here's a song, and you, I don't have to tell you what the influences were on this song. You'll get it, especially if you're of a certain age. It's called Yes, I'm Fine. 
Yes, I'm fine for the Midnight Strangers. Teen band out of Westville. Boy, what great productions they have on that. What great production sensibility, how they merge the parts, the cello that comes in, the kind of Beatles-esque harmony there. I said it. Old ground and new ground broken together. The best tradition of musical innovation with consciousness of what came before and just mixing it in a new way. Well, a lot of ground was broken this week in New Haven. At groundbreakings for apartments, yes, we've had what some people call a recession. Other people have different names depending on how they want to spin it. Harder economic times have not slowed down the apartment building boom in New Haven. We've seen construction of new market rate apartments, meaning rich people can buy them or upper middle class. I mean, rent them. We have not seen this in at least a half century or more in New Haven. They're going up fast. There are all sorts of questions of how to steer it, if it's possible, or let it go, and what it's going to mean for the rising rent. Do you know in the last year, rents went up 20% in New Haven? 20%. It's not like they weren't going up before. So amid that, there's been questions, what should we do about it, if anything, as all these new apartments go up? There's an estimated 8,000 families on lists waiting for affordable apartments that aren't there. And another 3,000 people of means who want to rent these more expensive apartments that cost a couple thousand for a studio or one bedroom and up to three or four thousand for a three bedroom. So two very different projects had groundbreaks in two days. And to the officials in the city, they believe that those two groundbreakings are linked in a strategy of the best way to create more affordable housing. This argument is going around all over the country. It's going around here. The first groundbreaking was in Dixwell, right near the border of, uh, New Hallville at the intersection Dixville Munson and Orchard, the old Joe Great slot, right? Parking lot. They built on top, and it's always good in New Haven. We're building on vacant land. We're not knocking down stuff or converting stuff that was for working class people, make it for the rich. We're building on vacant land, which is always good. It creates more value. 
So they're building on top of that old parking lot, a whole complex that's all going to be for low-income families. Beulah Heights is a church on Orchard. They've spent decades rebuilding their neighborhood in the best tradition of civic-minded churches that don't just take the collection plate on Sunday but go out and have the neighborhood better. That all started in the early 90s when an eight-month-old baby was shot to death, Danielle Taft, next door to the church in a slumlord-owned building. The whole block was owned by slumlords. Crack had come in. The buildings were falling apart. People lived in terrible conditions. And Bishop Brooks, Ted Brooks, said, our mission goes beyond our door. And they started, they formed a nonprofit that bought up properties on the block. Didn't try to make a profit. Didn't try to soak the rent. And they made the properties nice places to live. And they rented it to working class families, poorer families, at rents they could afford and that stabilized the block. Joe Great's lot is right across the street, so this is the, the next step to that. So I think everybody's all in on that. The next day, across town, downtown, where expensive apartments are going up, there was a groundbreaking for the next phase of something called the Audubon. And that was a block that was a parking lot. A long time ago, it was New Haven Register. But it's a, it's a block bounded by Grove, Audubon, Orange, and State. Okay, you got it in your mind next to the FBI building across the street. There... Very fast going up, just market rate apartments. As I said, $1,800 is the beginning rent, sometimes higher for a studio. Three bedrooms are go as high as three, 4,000 bucks. And, you know, professors are getting these apartments or students at Yale's professional schools for the most part or professors or researchers in biotech. So they had the groundbreaking for the third phase of um, six, six more of those apartments, but they also had a ribbon cutting for their second phase. Look at this. Second phase was 135 apartments, all crammed in that block, where they've already previously had a couple hundred. It's going to be 470 total. All of those apartments leased up before they opened. Hundred days. There's a demand here. People want those apartments. So here's where the argument comes in. People who advocate for more affordable housing disagree about the best way policy should help make that happen. So it's not left versus right. It's actually people think the same thing but disagree completely how to do it. So one side is called build, build, build. They say, let these people build these luxury apartments. Don't stand in their way. You don't have to get money to do it. If they can make money doing it, that will get not only more tax money to your community, not only more jobs and people around and safety, but it will lower rents at other buildings. Here's the theory. It's kind of old classic supply and demand theory of economics, right? Not that I'm an economist, but I think we all understand this one, right? If there's not enough to go around, you can charge more money. If there's enough stuff people want, you can't charge much money. So if there's enough built to satisfy the demand for market rate apartments, then at existing buildings, landlords can't jack up the rent. The people can pay the high rents to build the new places, and there'll still be stuff left over. That's the theory. So they say, don't get in the way of any of this. The other side says that's theory, but not practice. When you start building the expensive apartments, more people come who wouldn't have otherwise moved here. So more people come paying more rents or people in adjacent apartments saying, well, that's what they're fetching at that apartment. We can get it too. So they say you should have rules to either subsidize new housing the market won't create or require the people building these buildings to include an amount of affordable housing in it. So you want the right to build 400 new apartments or 460 or whatever downtown, 470 on this block. Next time, and they didn't have to do this yet because this law wasn't there yet, put in 15% of them for people who are, have blue-collar jobs or no jobs so they can afford the rent after they get subsidies. 
So the argument on the first side would be, well, then those people can't make money. They won't build the housing and everyone loses less housing gets built. On the other side, people say you could structure it so it works. New Haven passed an inclusionary zoning law that said you have to include affordable housing if you're going to build these apartments. But we're going to help you make the money back because we'll give you a bigger tax abatement than you might not otherwise have gotten for building new. And we will let you build denser, which means you could build more apartments in that space than you normally could under law. Cram some more people in so you could charge those other people the high rents. So it's all theory, folks, right? The um, the builder of this place is named Clay Fowler. He's building a lot of stuff around town. He's building fast on Audubon because he just paid it all market rate, no rules put in. Building slower to his other projects like the Coliseum site on Orange because there were rules pulled in to, create, to address social goals and he couldn't meet them. So I asked him yesterday at a press conference, it's groundbreaking. I said, if this inclusionary zoning law had been in place before you bought this property, would you have been able to build these apartments? He said the answer is complicated because he's done a lot of this in Fairfield County. He's actually part of a group that tries to get more affordable housing and make policy work. He says, when I build a project, I make 10 to 15% profit. So if you're going to tell me I have to put 15% affordable housing in, the money's not going to work. I just can't make up that money by charging more for other stuff. If you tell me 10%, it might work, but it's going to depend how low the rents have to be. So he couldn't have built this project. But we're not sure if that's a good or bad thing. And I think one part that gets left out is we still need government to build quality housing or nonprofits like Beulah to build a housing that doesn't make the money for for-profit investors, but we need in our community. So that's uh, that was the take on that. There's something else that happened this past week, not New Haven, that I think was really cool. Newport Jazz uh, Folk Festival takes place every year in Rhode Island. A lot of people from New Haven go up to that. I've been there past a long time ago. It had a storied history from the 60s during the folk revival. It's never quite like that again, but it's still a fun thing. This year it was happening. Some really cool stuff happened. Two cross-generational surprises in particular. The one that got the big attention was Joni Mitchell and Brandi Carlisle. Joni Mitchell played Newport in the 60s. She's just an incredible songwriter, musician, developed and grew in so many ways over the decades. She almost died. I forget if it was a stroke or what. She uh, recently, I mean, a couple of years ago, she had to learn how to walk again. She had to learn how to talk again. She had to learn how to play music again. She's in her late 70s. They thought it wasn't going to happen. She hadn't performed or anything. Then it turned out she taught herself all that. Brandy Carlisle is now someone who plays Newport every year. She's a young-ish Grammy winner. I've seen her here at College Street Music Hall. Terrific singer-songwriter. Pays a debt to Johnny Mitchell. Always plays her songs live. She got Johnny Mitchell to come out with all the other new folkies and perform at Newport and it was great and moving and people were crying and it sounded good. You can see it on YouTube and they play both sides now. It was really, I think a great song and it, it holds up. So that's what got the attention. There was another cross generous partnership that did not get the attention, but kind of fits into what we're talking about in headlines and baselines today, which is Paul Simon played. you know, he's from the old days and he brought up someone from a newer days um, to, to play a couple songs there. Rihanna Giddon of the Carolina chocolate drops. And they played Paul Simon's song, American Tune, which is a wistful look at what's happening to our tradition. So it's very resonant today. And what was even better is she added her banjo, which kind of added another flavor from the American tradition to that song. And she sang it, not he, changing the words a little bit from the perspective of an African-American who did not come on the Mayflower, which is one of the ships, 
a ship mentioned in the song. And it was passing the torch from generation to generation, just like I was talking earlier in music where you build on what came before and you respect it and incorporate it, but you give it the new voice and the new resonance, just like looking at Tuesday's primaries and looking at what came before in politics, but realizing that things change and that we have to change with it, with remembering what came before us. So I'm going to close out the show today. You can find this on YouTube with Paul Simon and Rihanna Giddens playing American tune, passing the torch at the Newport Fest Folk Festival this month.
Thanks for the trip.